Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross and it is time for the traditional first Monday of a major mailbag for Wimbledon 2022. Day one is in the books. I am live on YouTube. I am partially regretting for that reason leaving my window open. Hopefully there are no loud noises, uh, but I am ready to get underway. Uh, Post it on the YouTube community tab. Post it on Twitter. Uh, Excited to get into the the comments, which are a mix of uh, storylines coming into the tournament. There are some of today's results that people were were curious about and uh, a lot of topics that I'm really excited to delve into here. So um, I'm going to start with YouTube comments. I'm going to go to Twitter about 20 minutes in. And then because I am live, I do want to... Um, I do want to answer some some questions live, and if you want to uh, leave questions in the chat, I probably won't see them or get to them um, in the middle of my of going through the other questions, but but at the end. So so save them for the end, and I will uh, get some of your questions live. Let's begin. First one is from Jane. Hi, Gil. Thoughts on Hercotch early exit? Serve wasn't as reliable as previous tournaments this year. Many of us expected him to make a deep run into the semis. Rude's quarter now is looking very wide open, even more so than before. Any ideas who will come out of that quarter now? All right, so first let's talk about the Hercotch match. Uh, Hercotch loses to Alejandro Davidovich Fikina. I'm going to pull up the uh, exact score and the stats. So if I need to reference it, I can. Uh, but Davidovich Fakina won the first two sets. This was crazy, guys, if you didn't see it. He won the first two sets. He was up 5-3 in the third set. He was just far and away and very clearly the better player. And then he was up 40-love. Like, this is a routine straight set win. At 40-love... Hercotch hits a return hard down the middle of the court. And and Davidovich hits a tweener, a front-facing tweener, and misses it. It should have been a backhand. Now, I think what happened there, if you watch it carefully, is I think initially maybe he thought it could be a forehand and then it couldn't. And then he jumped ship. He jumped ship and went to tweener. Uh, really... You know, I don't know if if Fakina was in a different state of mind and it wasn't 40 love and things hadn't been going so swimmingly for him, if he would have gone for that shot or if he would have reacted a little bit differently. Uh, it's kind of unclear. The point is uh, he, he loses that point. He loses the next two points, not in horrendous fashion, but, but also... I don't think he really made Hercotch come up with anything brilliant either. And he gets broken. Then uh, it gets to 5-all, or I think potentially 5-6 before the rain starts falling. They have a rain delay. And I remember saying at this point, it it looked like Fakina was like so upset. And for most of the match, it really stood out to me the difference in demeanor between ADF and and Hubie. I thought that I thought that Fakina was in one of his modes where he was soaking up the moment and really playing every point 
like it was his last. The gears were turning in his mind on every single shot. He was way more disciplined from a shot selection standpoint than I'm used to seeing from him. And I thought he was really enjoying himself out there. And I'm I'm thinking classic Davidovich Fakina in best of five against a top player. Like he loves one thing I really love about him is he loves those moments. And it looked like he was really relishing it. Hercotch looked incredibly stressed to me. Looked incredibly stressed throughout the match. And more on that later. All right. Rain delay. Um, at this point, after the, the missed match points, suddenly Fakina is looking like super outwardly dejected. He's an emotional guy. He's an emotional guy. So so I get it. I get it. Um. I thought, okay, it's a rain delay. This is the first ever rain delay that benefits the player up two sets to love. You never say that. Everybody always asks me all the time. Uh, you know, it's a question posed. Oh, who did it benefit? Who did it benefit? Whoever's losing. That's who it's benefit. That's who it benefits. Whoever is losing. This was the exception. Fakina needed a break. Here's the thing. He came back, and I'll admit, when they first came on the court, I, I missed the end of the, the third set. So I don't know what happened there. But then I tuned in for the fourth, and I saw a lot of the fifth. ADF wasn't over it. He still wasn't over the match points lost. Now, I think, here's my take on the tweener. He was likely going to lose that point. Probably under a 50% chance he was winning the point. Because Hercotch did hit a good return, and... It's not as if Fakina at 40 love made this the, this clear point-costing error. But I think the fact that he went for it in that spot psyched him out, and I, I, I think he started doing some self-loathing, which I think would have been natural because, you know what? He shouldn't have hit that shot. Uh, it shouldn't have been a front-facing tweener. And I don't think he forgave himself at any point, which is— uh, Kind of unacceptable. I mean, you have a rain delay to regroup here. You're up two sets to love. Turn the page. Like, you need to have some short-term memory loss if you are Alejandro Davidovich Fikina. Uh, and, and he didn't. Again, young player, emotional player, needs to improve in some of those areas. And uh, he ends up losing the third set, losing the fourth set, down 5-3 in the fifth. Hercotch is serving out the match in the fifth set. And, um, I, you know, the point that does stand out to me is, uh, well, first of all, Hercotch double faults. And then at 30 all, Hercotch serves in volleys and hits a good drop volley. I mean, Fakina with a spectacular dig, a spectacular run, a spectacular dig. Uh, he ends up winning the break point. So Hercotch serves for the match. Suddenly, Hubie gets broken. It goes to a tie break. Hercotch goes up in the tiebreak. This is, by the way, a tiebreak to 10. And from 6-3 up in the breaker, Hercotch is up 6-3. He was not good. He got very, very tight. He missed two backhands in the midcourt inside the baseline. Real easy uh, backhands to attack that Hercotch missed and his feet didn't move. They got stuck from the nerves. Um, and Hercotch double faulted. And then on match point, 
Hercotch missed a first ball backhand, which was another really, you know, regulation backhand, which is jarring because usually it's the forehand. In fact, the forehand was the problem in the first set and, and the second set. Uh, Hercotch was not good uh, from up 6-3 in the tiebreak. He also was up 7-4. So uh, he was in a winning position, and Davidovich Fikina comes back to win the match. All right. Um, that is my kind of brief summation of the match. You know, it is a mailbag. I got to keep it short. And by the way, um, I don't have the ability to do, you know, I, I, it is kind of day one split attention. So I don't have, I don't want to get into that much, um, tactically. I will say that Fakina does deserve some credit here for figuring out some things when it comes to taking pace off the ball forcing Hercotch to generate, staying incredibly solid and consistent in sets one and two, and then in crunch time towards the end of the fifth, and making Hercotch generate and trusting his legs and his athleticism. My main knock which on Davidovich Fikina is that he misses too much, mostly because of his shot selection. And uh, I thought for large portions of the match, he was much, much better. By the way, one more point on Hercotch's collapse from a winning position in the tiebreak. 0 for 5 on first serves. 0 for 5. Yikes. Um, he was not making first serves in the clutch. He was not making plays in the clutch to, to win rally. I mean, it was, uh, it was a bit of a choke from Hercotch, you must say. Now, I still think to turn it into a slight positive for Hubie before we look at the draw... Uh, I still think that he's having a better 2022 than 2021, even after this. You know, I, I know that he made the semifinal at Wimbledon last year. Uh, I don't care. I think he's an improved. I think this season is an improved season. He's showing much better consistency. I know I said that in the power rankings. I will say it again. I just want to say uh, I stand by that. However, uh, there are some issues at, at majors for Hercotch. If you look at actually the larger body of work, the run to the semifinals at Wimbledon, like that was kind of it for Hercotch. Other than that, he has really struggled in best of five relative to what he's done in the Masters 1000s tournaments. And I will just pull up the records here. Um, best of five, Hercotch is 16 and 20 in his career now. He's 43 and 25 at Masters. So that's uh, like a 44% win percentage versus a 63% win percentage. Pretty uh, significant. What's going on here? Um, because I'm looking at Tennis Abstract right now, and it says his Grand Slam record is 16 and 17. So maybe best of five includes some Davis Cup. So let me amend that 16 and 17 for uh, Hercotch's record at the Slams uh, versus 43 and 25 at the Masters. All right, let's look at this section of the draw, shall we? Um, because it is, uh, it is true that this is Rude's section, and I mentioned that Rude section on the top half of the quarter that Hercotch is in is by far the most wide-open portion, the most wide-open eighth, I could say more specifically, of the draw. So let's take a look. Um, now, the Hercotch section, I still uh, I still think a lot of the section. I think that uh, I think that Nori and Dimitrov in particular 
are are pretty solid in this eighth as as the other seeded players. There's also Tommy Paul as the number thirty seed, uh, and then a couple of unseeded players who I really like. Uh, Yuri Vesely is uh, someone who routinely throughout his career has made round threes at Wimbledon. Uh, he's a a tall, uh, big serving lefty who's excellent at. He he responds very well to pace. I'll say. Um, and he's a he's got a good aggressive game. Then you have another lefty in Adrian Manorino, who uh, had to go five sets today against Max Purcell. Uh, Max Purcell is an Aussie who qualified very comfortable on the grass. I'm not ringing alarm bells by Manorino having to go five in in that match, but you know not not a really ideal way to start the tournament. Uh, but he was my dark horse in that section. So two unseeded players I really like in Manorino and Vesely. Uh, I, I like Cam Nori and. Um, I like Dimitrov here as well. Uh, who is my pick now to make the semifinal? That's the interesting one because I have Tiafo coming out of the Rude area. And I would have to now pick Grigor Dimitrov? I mean, I didn't see that, like, coming. Um, you know, I... It, it, it's it feels a little strange. It feels a little less strange than picking Tiafo to make what would be his his maiden uh, major um, semifinal. Just real quick, I do want to check the uh, Dimitrov Nori head to head. It's something that I haven't checked, so I'm going to pull that up before I move on to the next question in the mailbag, as I know I've spent a lot of time on this one. But you know, I think something's going on. You know, tennis abstract is down. And that's like a major resource that I use all the time. So now I have to go to the ATP website, and now I need to look at it over there. Yeah, I feel um, I feel without some of my weapons today, guys, because uh, Wimbledon is an IBM tournament, so I don't have as many stats as I do um, for Roland Garros and Australian Open, which are Infosys uh, tournaments, and I don't have Tennis Abstract today. Um, okay, so Dimitrov just beat Nori in Queens. Uh, last week, uh, but that was his first win against Nori because Nori very notably had a win over Dimitrov at last year's Indian Wells in the semifinal. And I, I thought upon seeing that match that Nori was actually a pretty bad matchup for Dimitrov, um, who, of course, has to slice into Nori's forehand with the backhand slice cross court. But I think on grass, um, that shouldn't be as difficult for Dimitrov to, to execute with success. Um, with the backhand slice being so much more effective, very different from Indian Wells than they met at at Miami in 2021. Not the week after, right? Because it was separated in the calendar, and Nori also won that one 7-5-7-5. So yeah, I guess Grigor Dimitrov is now my pick to get out of that section of the draw. Wild. Incredible stuff, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's move on. Uh, Flynn says, hi, Gil, apologies if you've talked about this already, but what do you make of the implementation of on-court coaching into some events this year, such as the U.S. Open, and do you think it will be successful? In my opinion, it would be tragic because the lack of coaching is one of the things that makes the sport unique. Interested to know what you think about it. Well, um, I need to like try to refrain from going 15 minutes on this because I can, and maybe it'll be another video where I will go more in depth. But for those who didn't see, uh, the ATP is going to do what the WTA has already done, 
uh, on a on a trial basis. The ATP is doing it, uh, which includes the U.S. Open. I I believe for the remainder of 2022, uh, there is going to be on court coaching allowed, which means, or actually, are they calling it off court coaching? Yeah, I think it's off court coach. Who cares? Here's here's what here's the point. The coaches are allowed to speak with the players from the player box. So there's no like WTA pre-pandemic where the coaches come onto the court uh, during the changeover. There's none of that. But if the player is on the side, the same side of the court as their coach, they can receive instruction, verbal instruction. Look, I I don't like it. I recognize that there was an issue here. The rule was either not being enforced or it was being enforced in a unfair and disproportionate ma- uh, manner. Uh, it was affecting more players uh, than others. And uh, that that's a problem. You, you don't like that. Now, I would argue that the rule wasn't entirely ineffective because surely the fact that it was against the rules to coach made it so that coaches would at least have to be uh, shrewd about it. They would at least have to be sneaky. And that, I think, as a result, makes it uh, makes communication limited. Um, so I think most were breaking the rule. Most were not adhering to the rule. But I still think that the, that the rule was just slowing down and dampening uh without a doubt, the amount of coaching that was going on. So in that sense, I thought it was effective. And I I always use the analogy of a speed limit. Just because the speed limit is 55 and everybody's going 65 doesn't mean the speed limit shouldn't be there and isn't working. That's my analogy for that. Um, I think the the solution here uh, could have been in the stadium courts, uh, move the coaches back, put them in in the 10th row. Like, stop... Stop having them sit courtside if uh, if this is such a big problem. And I think that would have fixed it. I mean, look, ideally, I don't really like this whole thing. This whole, like, we can't enforce this rule. This rule that I think is good for tennis. It's enforced at the lower levels, I believe. It's enforced when there's no crowd and it's a futures match and there's no noise, and the chair umpire is sitting there, and all it is is the coach and their players. The the coaches can't say anything to the players, or they get a code violation. In juniors, it's enforced. In, you know, 12 and unders, it's enforced. You know, my ideal sense of tennis, and part of the reason I fell in love with the sport, I feel that it's rewarding to play, I think it's good for kids to play, is because you have to figure it out, and I don't want that to go away. So I'm not happy about this. All right, another one now from Adrian Gosh or Gaethje or something else. Uh, one, I've always been intrigued by how players can be beaten by someone ranked much lower than them in the rankings just because they're a bad matchup. What attributes do you think would, would be that player for uh, each of the big three? Basically, what are the big three's bad matchups prototype and uh, which player... Uh, best embodies those attributes, okay? In other words, who uh, who was or who, who is the best anti-Fetter, anti-Nadal, and, and anti-Djokovic? And then there's a question about Vavrinka, uh, which I'll get to, okay? Um, yeah, styles make fights, right? Styles make fights. The best... Um, 
All right, let's start with Nadal. I mean, for Nadal, I think, especially if you are a righty, uh, you just need to be comfortable, I think, stepping in and taking your backhand on the rise. Uh, I think that's a major key. You need to be able to hug the baseline, and you need to be able to make Nadal feel uncomfortable to a point where his cross-court forehand um, is... uh, can't land short, and if it does land short, it's going to be punished. And those are the players who I feel observationally give uh, Nadal the most trouble. I think the most famous anti-Nadal is uh, is Nikolai Davidenko, who had a, a very positive head-to-head against Rafa. And Davidenko was someone who uh, really did a, a fantastic job of taking the ball early on the rise. And I just think Nadal's heavy spin uh, didn't bother Davidenko much at all. Uh, he was able to take it... Uh, take the ball early and take time away from Rafa and and just suffocate him uh, and punish him whenever the ball drops short. Sometimes Nadal's heavy topspin is not good for depth, and some players can take advantage of that. Um, Anti-Federer. Man, I think anti-Federer, I don't think it's quite as clear. Not quite as clear. I think you, you must attack. You must be able to hit hard into his backhand win. Uh, you know, you could you could easily say like, oh, like a lefty who's going to attack his high backhand. I can't really think of a guy who did that other than Nadal, so that's not really my answer there. Uh, I'll say like an Andre Rublev type, uh, someone who is excellent. It's funny though, for, uh, Federer just destroyed David Ferrer, who I think is similar. Uh, you know, a player who really goes hard at the righty backhand and tries to put them in jail on that side. Uh, I don't think it's that clear for Federer who the who the anti-Federer or what the anti-Federer is. Uh, he's he's been good against big servers. You know, I know that he's not the returner that Nadal or Djokovic is, but he's been good against big servers. Uh, can he be grinded down? Are grinders good against him? Uh, I'm not sure that that's the case. So nothing really comes to mind. And similarly for anti-Djokovic, uh, the only thing I'll say about the anti-Djokovic, um. Players, I would say, you know, really big hitters who play behind the baseline, far behind the baseline. I think those are the best players against Djokovic. Players who bring uh, a lot of power and aren't bothered by Djokovic's depth. You know, I'm kind of thinking of of like, I'm kind of thinking of like a team or of Avrinka. But here's what I mostly want to say about this question. There, there is no type of lower-ranked player, very much lower-ranked player, inferior player, that actually consistently gives any of them trouble. You know, that is why their their consistency at the majors, you know, Federer's quarterfinal streak, I mean, I don't, rem- I don't memorize what it was, but it was impeccable. Um, I was looking actually recently, and... Djokovic hasn't lost a match point before the quarterfinal. You have the U.S. Open default. You have the injury that he suffered to against Vavrinka. Uh, but Djokovic hasn't lost a match point before the quarterfinal since, uh, I believe, 2017. Might be 2016. It's been a long time uh, since Djokovic has lost a match point for a qu- before a quarterfinal. Uh, for Nadal... It's been uh, a very, very long time. I also think, I think it's been uh, not since 2015, potentially. And I'm going to check this for Nadal. Let me check this real quick. 
Um, and that is specifically because uh, these are players who are well-rounded enough that they aren't really... That usually there's no matchup that exists that's so bad that uh, they might have more trouble against a bad matchup, but but normally they won't lose to a, a player ranked far below them. Uh, for Nadal, it hasn't been since uh, Wimbledon round four in 2017. So that's the Mueller loss. And then in 2016, when he was really struggling, uh, that he, he lost before the quarterfinal at all three majors that he played. Anyway, so... 18, 19, 20, 21, two majors down in 22. We're going on five years since Nadala's lost before the quarterfinal and Djokovic has lost a match point before the quarterfinal. Okay? Incredible. Um, okay, ask me the Vavrinka question another time because I'm going to have to uh, keep it moving here. All right, let's go to Parth. Uh, Hi, Gil. I would like to know if you do YouTube full-time and also, uh, or are you also into tennis journalism? Also, what are your goals regarding this channel? Would you like to collaborate with the ATP in the future? Okay, it's, uh, and, and this got a lot of likes. Hold on, I'm going to move my camera over a little bit. Um, this this got a lot of likes, so people are interested. And I'm, I'm always down to answer questions like this in, in the mailbag. Whatever you guys want to ask me. Um, is fine. I, I I think this is what this series is for. Uh, so my main job, uh, and, and a lot of you guys know this, I'm sure, especially if you follow me on Twitter, my main job right now is broadcasting for Tennis Channel. So that is like what I'm mostly, that is my priority. Uh, that is my main income. Um, and I'm, you know, I feel very lucky to have have started my career post college uh, with the with the chance to to do that. Now, obviously, there are some weeks where I'm working, some weeks where I'm not. Uh, I've been doing a lot of T2 uh, recently, which is Tennis Channel's new network on Samsung TV. So that's why sometimes you don't actually hear me uh, on Tennis Channel proper, but but I'm still actually working and commentating on tennis. So I'm very, very happy with that, and, and I hope I'm, I'm doing that for, for a very long time. Um, into tennis journalism, I don't consider myself a journalist um, because I'm not information gathering. I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not on site. I'm not really talking to a lot of sources, asking players questions all the time. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of great tennis minds that I talk to. I pick their brains. Uh, I, I do try to try to stay involved that way, but um, I don't actually consider myself a journalist. I consider myself a, a broadcaster and a pundit. And uh, my goals regarding the channel is to mostly, you know, to, to, to keep doing it and to uh, see how far I can push it. You know, I don't feel a lot of pressure to make the channel into you know, something that, you know, becomes like what I'm supporting myself from, you know, financially or anything like that. Uh, but I just want to keep doing it and keep improving it and seeing how far it goes. And I want to continue to give tennis fans an optimized version and the best version of what I believe is kind of a missing piece in this, uh, in this space, which is kind of more... Uh, Long-form tennis analysis, in-depth tennis analysis, you know, coverage that kind of goes beyond the basics, coverage that goes beyond what you would read in a in your run-of-the-mill 
uh, post-match article on a various media outlet. Uh, there are, you know, some people out there who I think are doing what I do, but very, very, very few. And uh, one of one of them who who does an excellent job, uh, Matthew Willis uh, with the Racket, uh, he's he's actually just discontinued. I don't know if that's going to be forever or just temporary, but but he stopped doing it. So there are, there's very few of this, and I I do think that um, a sport needs punditry. I think that's very important punditry and analysis. I think fans need to engage with the sport in that way. To uh, again it. Think about uh, build storylines and think about the sport in new ways, and I, I just I just think it's important. So that's why I want to uh, keep doing it. And you know, my broadcasting career, um, I'd love to do other sports as well. So that's that's something that's a a personal goal. You know, I do want to get into some other sports, and I, I love the the art of play by play, the craft of that, and various other you know sports broadcasting ventures. Uh, outside of tennis, but um, right now I'm very happy with Tennis Channel, and when I'm when I'm not uh, busy with Tennis Channel, I'm I'm doing this. So that's my story right now. Question here from Grisha: Hey Gil, uh, my question isn't really relevant to Wimbledon, but I'll ask anyway. I see a lot of people attributing Medvedev's recent struggles to mental scarring from the AO loss to Rafa. And I remember seeing a lot of the same things said about Tsitsipas in the second half of last year after he lost the RG final to Djokovic. What is your opinion on this? Do you think there are cases where one loss can completely derail a player's season? And do you think that is what is happening with Daniil? Personally, I think there are plenty of other reasons for him to have been subpar so far this season. His short off season, his hernia surgery, plus the emotional pressure of the Wimbledon ban. So I'm not sure the Nadal loss had much to do with it. Great question. I tend to agree with you, Grisha. Um, I would add, you know, in, in your list, and I think it's a good list. Short off season, I was concerned about coming in. Very concerned about it. It was three weeks long. That's not enough. Uh, hernia surgery, obviously that's an issue. Uh, becoming number one, um, the being Russian right now, which is a lot better a lot better than um, being Ukrainian. I mean, you know, you don't want to frame, you want to be careful not to frame frame this as kind of like, like Russia's a victim here because they're not. Uh, but it, it's a reality that you know, is something that's out of Medvedev's control that uh, things like the Wimbledon ban take away his motivation um, to um, really rise and have a strong grass court season with with no real prize at the end and even just having to deal with the the media thing and not seeing your flag uh represented and and stuff like that so i i don't know what what effect that kind of stuff has um and then there are other other tennis reasons i will add though i will add though we have not yet gotten to the part of the season where Medvedev historically has excelled, which is the summer hard courts and then the the post U.S. Open uh, indoor hard court season. So, not only do we have all of these factors, we also have the fact that obviously he didn't play clay season, but uh, slow conditions at at the Sunshine Double. You have the clay results, and then you go to grass, where uh, he's he's not 
as comfortable as I think he will be in a couple of years on the grass yet. Um, However, here's what I will say. The question was about, is it about the Nadal final? No, I don't think that the Nadal final is really um, the issue here. I do think he's lost five straight finals. And his career record in finals until the U.S. Open, or, or I should say after beating Djokovic in the U.S. Open final, was 6-1. and one. So he was awesome in finals, exceptional. I do think at this point, what will begin to weigh on him mentally is if he is number one, uh, the, or the fact that he is number one, it's not an if, he, he's number one in the world, and he hasn't won a title this year. He's number one in the world, and he hasn't won a title since last September. That is going to be a weight. Oops. That is going to be a weight on his shoulders. Every time, you know, next time he's in a final, that 0-5, that five final losing streak, that is going to be a uh, a demon to be reckoned with. There's no doubt about that. But the loss to Nadal, no. You know, I understand he had a lead in that match, but... Look, there there were there were some mistakes made. He didn't choke though. He just lost it. He lost from two sets to love up. That's it. He didn't blow it in a in a way that I think is so scarring. Um, and and no, I don't think he's still thinking about that. I don't think that's the reason. Uh, but he's got a. It, it would be big for him to win a final. That's for sure. I'm going to go to Twitter in a moment. Uh, last one here from YouTube for now from Alex. Uh, hi, Gil. Where do Andy Murray and Cam Nori fall in your Wimbledon power rankings? So Murray, uh, a healthy Murray should have should have been in there, probably in the next four out. And uh, Nori would probably be like 15, like just missing it. So those two guys would be just outside of the power rankings that you guys saw. And uh, I, I probably should have had Murray in there, realistically, given, you know, coming back and making the final of Stuttgart and the, the Wimbledon pedigree. He probably should have been in there. Right, let's go to Twitter. Uh, hello, Gil. Bold prediction. Hercotch isn't making the semis of Wimbledon. <laughs> was that was that before the match? <laughs> okay, obviously that happened. Kyrgios Berrettini round four is my expectation to be match of the tournament. Okay. Uh, that's from Sedan. Okay. I have nothing to add. Uh, Preston, not a question, but hooray, no more middle Sunday. Look, when you when you do this, like when you work in tennis, here's a dirty industry secret. Dirty industry secret. Everyone who works in tennis is... Usually, with rare exception, hoping for less tennis. So the middle Sunday was actually really nice for everyone working on the tournament. And when I say that, I mean that like people in you know people working in TV and journalists, they want quick matches usually uh, because as as awesome as the job is, as great as the tennis is, as much as everybody loves it, uh, it's still working. So okay, w- here's what I'll say: the middle Sunday thing. Uh, most media won't be happy, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing for the fans. It makes perfect. It makes it makes perfect sense. Um, 
from an ex- accessibility standpoint and in terms of TV and stuff, how could you go away on a Sunday when everybody is at home watching their television? How could you do that? That is like mind-blowingly shoot yourself in the foot kind of scheduling. And I know the reasons for it and the tradition behind it, and I respect all that, but middle Sunday, gone, 100% a good thing. Uh, Hi, Gil. Thoughts on Cam Nori in this year's Wimbledon. Can he finally break the third-round curse and get into the fourth-round stage? Uh, Looking at Casper Ruud's recent... Uh, big Grand Slam breakthrough. It's definitely not out of the question for Cam to have a successful run. Taylor Fritz at, in Australia, Rude at Roland Garros, Nori at Wimbledon, three guys who kind of had that third round barrier and they were they were too good as players to have that. And Nori is totally that next guy, 100% that next guy. Um, and, and, and his draw is good. So he's got a good chance. He's got a good chance here. Uh, that's what I'll say. Again, there's players, there's plenty of players in that quarter who I like, but I would not be surprised at all. Nori's backhand in particular is, uh, is great for, for the grass. Now, what you don't love is that the grass kind of takes away his physical advantages, you like the slice serve. You like the lefty slice serve also. Nori is such an interesting player technically because different aspects of his game suit different surfaces. And you can't really, and for that reason, you can't really pin him in in any certain kind of area when it comes to what conditions suit him. It's very difficult. Other than maybe making the argument that hard court is really his best surface. Uh, this question from Vonch. Thoughts on Tsitsipas and the things in his game uh, you've seen improvement in as he goes into Wimbledon. Uh, the most ready he's ever been, having won a title, seems to be embracing the challenge. Definitely seems to be embracing the challenge. I, I think he's saying all the right things. I think he's determined to do well at Wimbledon. He wants to be great on grass. You know, he, he says like it's his favorite surface. And like, here's what you got to understand about Steph as a personality. He says his backhand down the line is his favorite shot also. You know, he loves the aesthetics. He's kind of into how things look and his style and his, right? And, like, I think that's why he loves grass. It's his favorite because I think it makes him feel good and feel cooler or whatever. But it's not his best. That much has been very, very clear. What do I make of the Mallorca title run? At the end of the day, I'm I'm just not very... I don't know how much we learned here, and, and I'm not very surprised. Now, it's great that he won the title. It's objectively a positive thing. It should give him confidence. Uh, but, you know, from my standpoint, personally, right, I power-ranked him before he won Mallorca as the ninth best grass court player in the world coming into Wimbledon. And just looking at the run in Mallorca... You know, he didn't really beat anyone who I would expect him not to beat. And then kind of going, taking it a step further, you know, the thing I always look for with Tsitsipas in particular is, did he play any big servers on the grass? And the answer to that is mostly no, you know, not really. Nothing even close to what he'll see when he faces Kyrgios, 
RBA in the final, kind of a spot server. Uh, Ilya Avashka is the biggest server that he faced. And, you know, Avashka's not in great form. Uh, I did see one thing that that I will say. I will say that I, I did like from Tsitsipas in the RBA match, which is that uh, I saw him going to this kind of topspin block return, you know, really shortening it up, shortening it up and not really swinging through. But instead of coming down on the block like a chip, uh, actually just slightly coming over it a little bit. And uh, I really liked that return, and I thought it made a lot of sense because, you know, we know that he's not a natural slice backhand, so it goes to show that, or it would make sense, that he wouldn't really be a natural chip return either. So uh, that was a return that caught my eye, and I liked it. Ultimately, here's what needs to be Pass's mindset, though, uh, as we hit the grass. Look, I don't think... You asked me for improvements. Here's what I don't think has improved. I don't think the backhand defense has improved on grass. I don't think the backhand slice has improved. I don't really think the return has improved much, although I am leaving the door open for me to potentially be wrong about that. I could be wrong about that. Uh, Those things I don't think have improved. Uh, But he needs to focus on holding serve. You know, I have a great serve. If if, if I'm Titipas, I have a great serve. I have an exceptional forehand that I do think he's flattening it out a little bit more on grass, flattened out a bit in Mallorca, and I thought it looked great, the forehand. And I have an amazing transition game. All of these things can come into play on a very, very high percentage of points on my own serve, especially when I'm making firsts. So Tsitsipas needs to focus on that. You know, uh find confidence in that and there's going to be a lot of tight moments and and close matches if he's able to hold serve and he's been excellent in he's been excellent at scrapping scrapping through kind of subpar performances and turning them into wins now it feels like he's had to do that like all year and it's probably getting a little bit tiresome for him to have to continually do that. Uh, but it's certainly better than losing. It, it's way better than losing. Bautista Gut, that got pretty complicated. Up a set and a break. Ended up losing the second set 6-3. Then served for the match. Got broken. Played a great tie break. And beat RBA in a third set tie break. Also went three sets uh, against Giron in the quarterfinal, but took care of Benjamin Bonzi and Ilya Vashka in straight sets. That was his run in Mallorca. That's all I got on that, I think. I will kind of throw throw out the disclaimer that I did not watch that much last week as I was um, in New York for the first time in a very long time, and I was focused on friends and family. I'm from New York, for those who don't know, but I'm in L.A. now. Um Hi, Gil. This is the first year Federer has not made the main draw this century. What's your best memory of Federer on grass? Uh, my best memory? I mean, can I... Can I... Best memory. Does that mean it's a good memory for him? I mean, my best memory of Federer on grass is the 2008 Wimbledon final. That's my best memory of Nadal on grass, too. That's just an amazing memory for me, personally. But hey, I mean, 2019 was also an incredible memory. I was in Venice, Italy, okay, at the time. And if you know anything about like Venice and I think Italy in general, it's very hard to find a television 
um, at a, you know, when you're out. Um, and I didn't, instead of watching like in my, in my hotel room at the time, I actually found like the only Irish pub in Venice and I was watching it there. So, and that was obviously an incredible match with, with so much to remember. Uh, but if you're going to say a win, I mean, That's a tough one, kind of. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if one stands out to me. I got to be honest. The Roddick, the Roddick win in 2009. Uh, hi, Gil. What are your predictions for Rafa this year? I'm going to skip that one. Uh, in-depth, depth, in-depth explanation as to why Murray's game works so well on grass. I think I touched on that in the preview, but you know, a lot of it is how he serves. You know, he's a slice serve, including his second serve, and that just stays low and it's more difficult to attack on grass. Uh, he also gets a lot out of the the harder first serve on grass that that he can bring to the table. His backhand is very flat and very precise. So on clay, uh, it doesn't quite have the heaviness to be a great offensive weapon, but on grass that changes, and it is a good offensive weapon. Uh, I also think his backhand slice is excellent, very underrated. And uh, lastly, he's a fantastic returner. He he does a tremendous job against the biggest serves in the world of getting many back in play. He's able to keep the returns low and difficult to, to attack, uh, very similar to Federer at his best as a returner on grass in, in the way that he does that stylistically. So that's my short answer. Um, Nadal, all four slams. I answered that last time. Higher ceiling between Brooksby and Rune. Rune is so much more textbook when it comes to all of his technique and the way he goes about things. So I'll say Rune, where Brooksby's more of like a... Brooksby's more of a... Uh, I'm kind of losing the word that I'm looking for here. I'll just go with question mark, wild card, but it's more of like a... It's very intriguing. I don't know how Brooksby, how good Brooksby's going to get. He's really struggling right now, but I am a believer in things that he was doing when he was winning. I, I think it was incredibly uh, legitimate how difficult he was uh, to beat at that time. So I'm a believer in Jensen Brooksby, uh, but definitely Rune is my answer to that question, no doubt. Okay. Uh, different line calling systems in, in place for the slams, uh, on tool here says as something so basic and critical in the sport, shouldn't they be consistent throughout? Well, it's difficult to be consistent throughout, uh, because Hawkeye is not approved on clay for a competition. So already you have that inconsistency. Australian Open, um, U.S. Open, and and Wimbledon, they can get on the same page, and I, and I I hope they do. But right now we're kind of in a transitionary point in in this whole thing, and part of that is pandemic related. When they were trying to take personnel off the court uh, at the U.S. Open, especially, and that is the first time we saw live ELC, and they you know the sport needs to figure out. I, I do think that the the bodies need to figure out how they want to move forward here and uh, yeah 
it's tough. I don't I don't have a really strong opinion on what it should be, to be honest. Question about Nadal being three and zero against Murray at Wimbledon. Look, I mean that's a all I'll say is you know that's that's an impressive stat for Rafa, but he's a better player than than Andy in general, um, especially at majors. So it's you know it's not it's not a full out stunner, and you know Andy Andy has struggled against Rafa in general, so. Jack Draper, I, I like Jack Draper. He can do a lot. He's got a big game, an offensive game. His mobility is getting better. It's still not really there yet. Uh, the backhand, it needs to be a good backhand day. I've seen that shot be excellent, and I've seen that shot be really bad. Uh, but ultimately, the kind of lefty, big lefty, serve plus one kind of guy who can definitely do some damage. And... Uh, if you're asking me, how do you think he'll match up against Berrettini? Uh, pretty well. I think he should match up pretty well as someone who can attack that righty backhand uh, with his lefty forehand. Someone who can um, potentially force a lot of tie breaks against Mateo. And then it, it might come down to who's the more clutch player. Why doesn't Rude do well on grass? His game has many similarities to Berrettini, whose best surface may be grass, or even FAA. Is it because his serve isn't at the cheat code level? Uh, good question. And I think the question, I think the reason you think that Rude is similar to Berrettini and FAA is because of their their strengths, right? That serve plus one strength. And you're not wrong about that. I, I agree with you about that. Uh, I think the biggest difference is... Rude's forehand and how it comes off. Yes, his first serve isn't quite at the level of those two, especially not Berrettini. Uh, it's just topspin is such a big part of what makes Rude's forehand difficult to deal with. And that heavy topspin forehand, it, it just, the grass doesn't help it. You know, it doesn't, the grass doesn't take to topspin like Rude needs it to. And the the thing is with Rude is he does not have another way of hitting his forehand, really. It, he's just not. He just doesn't hit it flat. Where uh, FAA, even though there's a lot of topspin on FAA's forehand, he hits it on a line, okay? It's a laser. He hits it very straight. Rude hits with shape. Uh, Rude hits with arc. It's a different level of topspin. There's less uh, pace on it. And, and Berrettini is the same thing. Berrettini gets plenty of RPM on his forehand, but it's combined with big-time MPH, lots of speed. So, yeah, those are those are the main things. But also, by the way, FAA is a better returner than Rude on a fast court, a much better returner. That's a big deal on a grass court. Oops. Um, how important are grass tune-ups for Wimbledon? Sviantek and Alcaraz are notable players who skipped them this year. I don't think they're that important, um, especially if you're experienced on the grass. I really support Carlos Alcaraz's approach to, to uh, playing as light a schedule as possible. And Sviantek as well. I always support players who do that. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know that there's a lot of players who I think don't play enough, you know, other than Serena 
in recent years who I think hasn't really played enough. Uh, but in general, I think you can play. I think a lot of players are playing too much. I think very few players are not playing enough. Uh, okay, someone's asking me about Novak. Hey, Gil, I don't know if you watched much of Novak. I, watch, I did watch a lot. Uh, what I can see, he looked tired, unenergetic. It was, not about the, it was not just about the body language. Your thoughts? Well, I would argue the reason he looked tired and unenergetic to you is because of the body language, right? I mean, I, I doubt that you were picking that up during the point, uh, but it was a weird performance from Novak. He wasn't at his best. Uh, he, he did plenty. He was never really in danger. I don't think of losing the match. He, he might have been in a bit of danger in the, in the fourth set when he was down a break point and he, hit, he had to hit a really good second serve. Amazing, 112, like right off the tee uh, to, to save that break point. That was the turning point. It was off to the races from there. Uh, but Djokovic was weird emotionally, completely flat. And uh, it was the same that we saw against Nadal in, I, I know, drastically different circumstances. We're talking about a huge match against Rafa in a quarterfinal versus first round against Sun Wukwan. Completely different. But all the things that Goran Ivanisevic was saying about you know Novak and his body language and his energy being flat, all of those things were were the the same today. He just couldn't get himself fired up at all, Djokovic. So, yeah, the the tennis wasn't at a hundred percent. I don't think that's a big deal. You know, first match back on grass, he wasn't perfect against Jack Draper last year either, uh, and you know, it's all it's all grave with that. But I just I don't understand. I don't have a conclusion, okay? I don't know what this means, but I find it weird how sedated and and lethargic and uh, despondent Novak has looked at times. Uh, or I, I'll just keep it to this match, the first round match. He didn't seem to be enjoying himself too much. I don't know. When we go into a replay, why is there an applause? That's a rhythmic clap. A rhythmic clap. It's not. It's not um, a recording. It's real. Why do you think Djokovic has not yet fixed his overhead? It can't be too hard, can it? I'd be willing to bet that that is a mental thing, and that's why he hasn't fixed it. I don't think. I bet if we watched Novak in practice, his overhead would be totally fine. Because. Uh, yeah, I don't think he has any bad habits on it, technique-wise. His bad habit is that he decelerates. That's why he misses. He decelerates on it. And deceleration is mental. So that's why. Uh, and then last one here from Twitter before I'll jump back to YouTube. Uh, my friend uh, Anthony says, What caused you to join us in the year 2022 with the switch to iPhone? Need a special video on this. You won't get a special video, but I will answer. I just got an iPhone, everybody. Just got an iPhone. And uh, I had been using a Google Pixel for about a decade. And uh, look, I don't know what forced me to switch really, but but the, the thing that ended up bothering me was just the phone-to-phone -phone interactions, okay? The... 
the MMS versus the SMS, right? The iPhone, iPhone, you can do some things, right? You can like the message if you need to get out of a conversation, if you're done with that. Can't do that with an Android, iPhone, Android. Can't do it. Uh, People would send me a video and it would look like it was shot in 1995. Android to Android, it's fine. Videos are fine. But iPhone to Android, there was a problem, Uh, you know. Had to video chat on WhatsApp instead of FaceTime, you know. So basically, I got sucked into the cult. You know, here in the U.S., I know it's different internationally. Here in the U.S., I'm in like the 5% or something of non-iPhone users. And I was just kind of sick of it. Now, I, I will say this. Do I think there is any reason why I had to pay 200 extra dollars? For an iPhone. Do I think there is any reason why I will pay a premium anytime I lose my charger or something random like that? Any reason. Technologically. Battery life. Camera. Processor. All that stuff. Versus a Pixel? No, I don't. No, I don't. No reason for it. No reason for it. It is Apple charging for the brand. But they win. They win again. They got me. They got me. A couple more here from YouTube. Then I will take uh, some of your live questions. Calculating Dork, who is a member. Thank you for being a member. Uh, Whenever Wimbledon starts, I asked myself if we will see a legit serve volleyer going deep this year. Yes, not many of today's players to deploy that style. Uh, Thank God for Cressy. But I still think the grass surface, regardless of how it got slower, is a great chance for implementing this style frequently in the match, even for baseliners with a good net game. So what do you think are the chances of seeing more legit serve volley tennis in late state, serve volley tennis in late stages Wimbledon in the next 10 years? I actually think we're going to see it. I don't think we're going to start to see regular serve volleyers, but I think we're going to start to see a very strong understanding that uh, that it needs to be part of your repertoire. And what happens generally in in many in in a lot of sports, definitely in tennis, <clears throat> sorry, is there's a bit of a push pull. Push pulls happen. So right now, the uh, the push, I'll say, is deep return positions. Returners giving themselves extra time to react to the serve and able to take fuller swings as a result. That's the push. So to that tactic, there now needs to be a reaction to that tactic. Undoubtedly, serve and volley is the most natural reaction to that. And that is why we saw Djokovic in the final of Bercy against Medvedev go to it over and over again with such great success. That is the 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 primary example, I think, uh, in terms of as far as individual matches are concerned. But I, I do think we're seeing it more and more in, in these matches. There was even a match where Alex Dimonor was moving back against Rublev, and I saw Rublev uh, going to, to serve in volley. Rublev. So I think... I think everybody's starting to understand that it needs to be a part of the game. 
This one from JG. Gil, do you find questions in press conferences getting more political in recent years? It seems like some of the press have an ultra-woke agenda. So you don't cite a, you know, there's no, you're not citing a specific, a specific question, which would make it this obviously a lot easier for me to answer uh, this comment. But I don't think that any reporters at press conferences are asking questions about politics that are not, that is not directly affecting or relating to tennis. I, I have not seen that. So the day that we get like, you know, Serena Williams talking about or being asked about um, the Affordable Care Act or how much the 1% should be taxed or, uh, man, like, should we uh, get rid of the filibuster? Okay, all that boring stuff. Uh, no, it's not boring. I'm just joking. Politics is very interesting. But, you know, as soon as we start seeing players be asked about that, you know that something's wrong. Uh, but I do think that I think that a journalist's job, um, a tennis journalist's job is, is to cover anything that affects tennis. So you'll see me on, on this channel. You know, I'll talk about stuff if I need to. But if I don't need to because it doesn't re relate to tennis, then I don't talk about it. Um, you know, when it relates to political matters, I mean, you could try if you're curious, if anyone was curious about my thoughts, you could try asking in a mailbag and I, I might choose to answer it. I might not. It, it really depends on, on the topic, but like in general, you know, I don't think that anyone in tennis media is really needlessly bringing politics into anything here. I just think that sometimes in an international sport, uh, these things intersect they intersect very blatantly and clearly. For example, most recently, you know, you have uh, you have Australian politics coming into play in a in a big time way uh, with Djokovic's immigration status, and you know, ultimately, Australia trying to figure out if they want to let uh, unvaccinated people into the country if they have a past infection of COVID-19 trying to figure that out seemingly in real time and ultimately deciding that they weren't going to let Djokovic in because he was going to fan the flames of anti-vax sentiment. So uh, that's politics affecting tennis. It happens. It's a reality. And the, you know, when that happens, I think it's important that tennis media is equipped to cover that stuff intelligently. That's the most important thing. You got to cover it intelligently, but you do have to cover it. And you got to ask players about it. From Marco. Hi, Gil. Thank you for this space uh, dedicated to us. And I wanted to congratulate you for the work you're doing. Thank you very much. Uh, question. Why is Shapovalov not considered among the potential competitors of this Wimbledon edition? Don't you think he's a bit undervalued on grass? Last year uh, has shown he could be a threat for all players. Thanks so much. Well, I did put him on upset alert in the preview. And a lot of you probably heard my reasoning for that. Um, you know, I don't actually think Chapo 
needs grass. I don't really know that it was grass that made him so successful at Wimbledon last year. I thought that there were good stylistic matchups for him. Um, Matchups that protected his backhand, protected his backhand defense. But I also thought that it was about Dennis himself. Uh, It was about the state of mind that Shapo was able to get himself into uh, and the way he was seeing the court, the way he was uh, hitting big into big targets and finding some consistency from the back of the court and also finding high percentage of first serves. I don't think it was so much about the grass. Right now, Dennis seems mentally fragile to me. And it seems like he doesn't have a lot of confidence. So if the question is, well, wouldn't the Wimbledon semifinal run last year help him in this respect? I just don't see it like that. I don't see it like that. I think that this is a point in time where he's probably putting even more pressure on himself. Even though he doesn't have the points to defend, he's actually going to drop in the rankings as if he lost first round regardless of what he does. Uh, I think he'll be putting a lot of pressure on himself. And I'm just not, I just don't really like what I've seen from Chapo at any point, even when he made the round of 16 and beat Nadal. I don't even think he played well in the match. I thought that a lot of the, the bad habits that he needs to try to break were very much present, even in, in Rome. From Get Paul, hi Gil, if you could interview a tennis player on your show, what would you ask them? What would you be able to learn outside of what you see watching them play? And also, what would your top 10 uh, be post-Roland Garros? Basically, an updated clay power rankings. I'll answer the last one first. I don't know how much would change other than Rude was way too low. You know, I think that was probably the big, the biggest mistake of the power rankings was that Rude was too low. So that that's kind of be that would be what I would change. It depends on the player what I would ask them. I'm trying to think of how I could answer this question in a in a way that is uh is good and entertaining. But uh obviously you need to build up trust with a player and that's what will lead to a good interview. A player needs to trust you and feel comfortable, and then they'll tell you stuff. But unless that happens, this is what's so hard. This is what you know. This is what's so valuable about someone like Ariel Helwani in the sport of MMA. For those of you who are familiar with his work, uh, he has built up the trust of fighters. Fighters know who he is. They want to be give good interviews. They feel comfortable with him, and that's why he gets great stuff. You know, I can ask great questions about tactics in a match. I can ask great questions about how are you feeling um, at, at this point in time and what went into the decision to do this uh, in your scheduling or make this decision about your coaching or how does this physio help you and what did your offseason look like? I can ask all these questions, uh, but I may or may not get the answer that I'm looking for depending on if, how comfortable a player is with me. Last one here. It is from Ilfat. New subscriber. Let's go. Uh, 
Just want to say that your content is really good. The best I've seen about tennis. That's awesome. Appreciate the kind words. Uh, I've always supported Rafa because of his fighting spirit, resolve, and it's a pleasure to see that someone is that passionate about what they do. But from next generation, I can't really find anyone with the same attributes, so I'm not really sure how I can continue watching tennis after Rafa's retirement. Or maybe I'm missing someone. Uh, Who do you think possesses the same character traits as Rafa does? Yeah, the, the big kind of conundrum for many big three fans of who's next uh, as these three approach the end of their careers. I will say this. It sounds like the biggest thing that draws you to Rafa is how he goes about his business. You know, you mentioned his passion for what they do. You mentioned his fighting spirit, his resolve. Look, everybody tries to take that from Rafa Nadal. I think most players, they they look to implement that. They want to be that. Very few can. I'm not going to tell you who to root for, but Carlos Alcaraz does a darn good job of taking Rafa's on-court, especially young Rafa, uh, taking what Rafa has done on-court and professionally going, you know, how to manage a tennis match and how to behave on a tennis court and how to treat the the sport. Alcaraz has really, I think, done a good job of modeling himself after Rafa in that aspect. And I, I don't know, you know, I would be curious to know, like, what do you think of Carlos Alcaraz? Um, now, if you're a Djokovic fan, if you're a Federer fan, um, there might be other things that draw you to Alcaraz, but not that, not that part of it, right? Where I, I think that there are other players who might resemble um, Novak or, or Roger a little bit more. But uh, I'll end on this, answering this question. going to be hard. going to be hard. If, if that's the mentality, uh, if, if the mentality is to find someone the same as Rafa, find someone the same as Novak, the same as Fed, well, that's going to be impossible. But even if you're trying to find someone similar that might not be the best way of going about finding a new player to root for. Um, And it probably has to happen naturally. There's no kind of way to go about it other than, than seeing what clicks. I'd say that's it. All right. Um, I want to take a short bit of time to, uh, to go to the live chat. Um, I do see that racket talk here gave me a super chat. So I want to go to that first and I will continue to scroll to see if anybody was kind enough to leave a a donation. But if you have questions, um, do type them here. Hi, Gil. Do you think Djokovic might fall victim to Nadal here? Similar to fed in 2008 because of too much clay court losses. Oh, I see what you're saying. You're saying mentally, uh, will it affect Djokovic that he lost? um, Like, okay, so obviously in 2008, Nadal destroyed Federer at Roland Garros. I think to an extent that affected the subsequent Wimbledon final. I don't know. I think Djokovic, 
I think Djokovic has experienced as as in, as funny as this sounds. He's experienced enough losses to Nadal on clay that it probably won't have an enormous effect if they do meet on grass. I think Novak should be able to kind of turn the page and be confident that he'll get him back at Wimbledon. Now, um, I I think the same is so for, for Nadal's confidence level. I think they know it's kind of, look, they've played so many times that these individual matchups, I, I don't think the, the head-to-head is so much so on a on a balance, on a string like that where where the confidence level or the mental edge can kind of swing back and forth so so easily or so quickly. Uh, and I don't think the head-to-head is in a place where that is happening. I think both players feel like they can beat each other. And that is probably going to be the perpetual state of the head-to-head uh, for the foreseeable future, in my estimation. I did go to uh, Twitter questions. Um, LSB. That Laura? I'm not sure if that's you. Um Hi Gil, this is from Get Paul. Um following up on the Clay top 10, would FAA be ranked higher than Casper based on the performance against Rafa? That's an interesting question. No, I don't think so. I don't think there's enough results there to uh to warrant that. Just Casper. I mean, Casper's been in the semis of Monte Carlo, the semis of Madrid, the semis of Rome, uh, FAA would need to kind of build up that resume, I think, in order for just the Rafa match uh, warranting that switch. Uh, oh, you know what? This is a great question, and I'm, I'm really glad uh, people are commenting about this now. Uh, your thoughts on Alcaraz today? This is from Adarsh and Steph. Um, let's talk about this. And then let's call it a wrap after this. Unless there's a super chat. That's too tempting. I have to answer if you donate. Um, let's talk about this. So, okay, Alcaraz wins in five sets against Jan Leonard Struff. Drops the first set. Drops the third set. Comes back from down two to one. Two sets to one. Wins the fourth in a tie break. Wins the fifth. Six to four. General thoughts here. I have a lot of trouble being negative, taking away any negatives from this match for Alcaraz. You might say, Gilly almost lost. This was tight. This was close. Yes, it was. Indeed, he almost lost. But the reason I didn't have this circled as an exceptionally dangerous opening round match is because of is because of Jan Lennard Struff's form. 2-10 coming into this match on the season. I think 2-12 if you include uh, qualies and challengers and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, but but basically no form whatsoever. No reason, and I just didn't know what was going on, but but I've, I've seen Struff at his worst, and it can be bad. So for that reason, I thought that Alcaraz was, uh, was in good shape here. But what did we get? We got 20-20 Jan Lennard Struff. 2020 Jan Lennard Struff, who picks up and elevates his game at majors, 
who plays a really ruthless attacking style and someone who cracked the top 30 in 2020. And the clutch serving was impeccable by Struth. Now, did I think Alcaraz was just struggling, I think, on, on some of the... Uh, on return at the same time, yes. But ultimately, the main frustration for Alcaraz in this match was he wasn't able to make clutch returns. And he was like 1 for 13 on break points through four sets. And Struff, very uniquely, wasn't just able to earn major advantages on serve under pressure over and over and over again on his first serve, but he was able to do it on his second serve as well. And I thought that was the the thing that was troubling Alcaraz so much more than anything. But Struff made it a classic grass court match. No rhythm, all-out aggression, even on the return, lots of net rushing, short points, boom, boom, bang, bang. Um, and that that's tough. For Carlos Alcaraz playing his first match on grass court of the season, the third match on grass of his career, and now you have a Jan Lennard Struff rolling back the clock like it's 2020, playing bang-bang tennis on grass. That's danger. So the fact that Alcaraz almost lost, you want me to get negative about that? Can't do it. To me, it's entirely understandable that this went five. The only reason I didn't see this coming is because I didn't see that level coming from Struff. I didn't think he had that in him, but he did. The main takeaway for Alcaraz, though, uh, technically speaking, is that he really ramped up the serve, did a great job on serve, uh, ended up ditching the, the kick serve, which he used as a primary first serve over the course of the clay court season, and it was effective, uh, in favor of the flat serve, and hit a career-high 30 aces, beat his previous high of 12. Now, granted, not a lot of five-set matches on fast surfaces, but still, almost tripled his previous career high. Uh, Averaged 120 miles per hour on first serve, And here's the key. Here's what's most important. Because I've said it time and time again. I know Alcaraz can hit big first serves. I know that. 66% in play. That was my question mark. That is what I was unsure about. Can you hit the flat serve and make a decent percentage and hit your spots? And I thought Alcaraz was much improved here. There were some misses that were like alarming like because they weren't close but other than that i thought that that he really met the challenge from a serving per- standpoint and it's clear that him and juan carlos ferrero have been on the practice courts hitting flat serves and trying to adjust to the surface in that manner so I thought it was a great win for, for Alcaraz. Those are my thoughts on, on that match. And uh, with that, I'm going to wrap it up. I believe tomorrow I am going to cover the uh, the Serena match, post-match video uh, on Serena's return. I just think that's, uh, that's a big deal. It's against Harmony Tan, and uh, it'll be intriguing to see how Serena looks. That, I think, will be my post-match video. I want to go uh, daily as daily as I possibly can. We'll see how I'll do with uh, with post-match 
uh, breakdowns. I'll also do, be doing some uh, preview stuff with uh, Action Network. So I'll, I'll share that on the uh, community tab. Um, so looking forward to a, a great fortnight. It was quite an eventful day one. And I've gone over an hour here on this mailbag. Thank you, everybody, for uh, for joining me live on YouTube. And if you're watching on replay, appreciate you watching. Appreciate you guys as well. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge? It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.